We resume our study of 1 Peter, and we come today to verse 14 of chapter 1, and the first negative exhortation in Peter's first epistle. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, a prohibition of thou shalt not. But we move today into verses 15 and 16 as we see the corresponding positive. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And today we take up the other side of the coin of the text that we looked at last Lord's Day. We see the corresponding positive that matches last Lord's Day's negative. And this will help us to understand what resting our hope fully upon the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ means, which was the first exhortation in verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind to be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And those who live in anticipation of Christ's return will be motivated to endeavor to live a holy life. The negatives and the positives. Putting aside the former lusts that were in our ignorance and conforming ourselves to the holiness that God requires. And so today our text is verses 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And I think there are two emphases in our text today. Number one, the holiness of God. Number two, the holiness of man. The holiness of God. The holiness of God. How significant is this doctrine? Well, you need to know that this is the most frequently mentioned attribute of God in all the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament. That surely will come as a surprise to many who live in modern Christianity in America, who probably have thought that the love of God was the most widely emphasized attribute of God in the Bible. But it is not. It doesn't even come close. God certainly is love. And we don't mean to imply that he is not, for surely he is. But the holiness of God is emphasized many, 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 many more times than the love of God. In fact, it is the holiness of God that defines every other attribute of God. God is a God of love, and his love is a holy love. God is an omnipotent God, and his omnipotence is a holy omnipotence. And on it goes through everything that you know about God, every attribute of God, you need to understand that attribute is a holy attribute and can only be rightly understood against the backdrop of holiness. And so that brings us to ask, what does holiness mean? What is holiness? As he who called you is holy, You also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Well, at the root, the basic idea of the word holy is the word separate. Holiness is separateness. 
And as it applies to God, first it means that God is other than and higher than his creation. God is separate from his creation. There really are only two categories of anything in all the universe, that which is uncreated and that which is created. And there is a tremendous gap between the uncreated God, he's the only one who's in that category, and everything else which is created, And God's holiness is first a reference to the fact that he is different from, other than, separate from all that is made, all that he himself has made. God is separate from creation. God is holy. Holy is used in Scripture in such a way that it almost becomes a synonym for the word God itself. God alone is God. There is only one God. Anything that is called God is not God. It's a counterfeit God. It is a rival God, but it is not a true God. There is only one God. God alone is God. And God alone is holy. There is a sense in which God is holy in a way that nothing else can be holy. Because, again, of this separateness between creator and creature. Between the uncreated and the created between the fact that God is wholly other than that which he has made. And so, therefore, even, for example, the holy angels, who are called holy angels, we must understand that that is a relative holiness, though in their case it does indicate they have never sinned, they have never disobeyed God, and yet they are not as holy as God. They are not completely like God. They are lesser in their holiness than even God. I wish I knew whether the holy angels are now confirmed in holiness. Obviously, there was a time when they were not, because many of them chose to rebel against God, and there's much mystery there. But whatever was in the angels when they were all holy angels, that enabled them to choose to sin against God and go their own way, was an indication that they are not completely pure and holy. For you see, God is so holy, he's not even capable of choosing to do wrong. And therefore, the holiness of God indicates an absolute purity beyond that which can be experienced by anything else in all the universe. But in a more practical sense, the holiness of God for us reflects God's moral character. God is holy, and therefore, whatever conforms to his character is holy. Whatever is in contrast to his character is unholy. And God delights in whatever reflects his character. And God is opposed to whatever in the universe is contrary to his own holy character. Furthermore, as the word holiness is used in the Bible, we learn that whatever is selected for God's use or possession is said to be holy. We see that in the Old Testament as the Levites, for example, were set aside for consecrated devotion to God. Their lives belonged to him. They were set apart to serve him in a special way, separate from There's that word separate again, separate from all the other people in the nation of Israel. 
And they were consecrated to God, and thereafter they were considered to be holy, as were all of the objects of worship in the temple, the furniture, the utensils, and so forth. All of these were dedicated to God, reserved for His use, to be used only to bring honor and glory to Him. They were separated from common use unto the use of God, and in this way they are thereafter said to be holy. That's one reason why... Belshazzar got in trouble when he used the holy utensils from the temple in Jerusalem to have his drunken feast. He took that which had been consecrated and identified as holy unto the Lord, and he used it for common use, a great desecration, a violation of that which had been determined holy. But Peter quotes a particular text when he tells us about the holiness of God. He says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Because it is written, quoting a text, and the question is, what text? Now, this is the first of many Old Testament quotations in the book of Peter. Up until now, he has not quoted from the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, which were virtually the only scriptures available to him at his time in history. But he has already, you recall, made reference to the Old Testament prophets and to their writings in verses 10 and 11 and 12 that immediately precede the section that we are in now. And here he quotes a statement out of the Old Testament scriptures And it sounds very similar to a number of statements found in the book of Leviticus. Similar to ones found in Leviticus chapter 11, as well as 19, as well as chapter 20. Leviticus 11, 44 and 45 sound similar to our statement, as does Leviticus 19, 2 and Leviticus 20, verse 7 and verse 26. But closer examination makes it, I think, indisputably clear that the particular text in Leviticus that Peter is quoting here is the one in Leviticus 19.2 because it turns out that he is quoting the Septuagint version of that text exactly, word for word, without any variation of even one little letter. The Septuagint, the Greek version, the the Greek translation of the Old Testament was the Bible that was used by Peter and the apostles and the New Testament Christians in their day. And so he quotes from the Septuagint translation, and it turns out that the wording is exactly that of Leviticus 19.2, so undoubtedly that is the text that he quoted. And that's why we read that earlier in the service today. Leviticus 19.1, And the Lord spake to Moses, saying, verse 2, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. This text in Leviticus 19.2, as well as the subsequent ones in chapter 20, are found in an extended passage that commentators call the Holiness Code of Leviticus that takes up several chapters of requirements, just like the ones we read earlier. And I just cut it off at verse 19 rather arbitrarily. We could have kept reading on. We could have started reading in a previous chapter. We could have kept reading into another chapter and you would have found a similarity in what we were reading. All kinds of requirements, all kinds of prohibitions, and these matters that we find in this holiness code define what 
wholly meant to the children of Israel in Moses' day. When God says, speak to all the children of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy, then what follows is a description of what God means by that. This is how you are to be holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father and keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols nor make yourselves molded gods. I am the Lord your God. And so forth. And all of these regulations and codes, we know that in the law of Moses there are 613 requirements and prohibitions altogether. And all of these things define and describe and constitute what it meant to be holy for the children of Israel in the days of Moses. The holiness of God. Furthermore, by quoting this text in the way he does, Peter tells us something about the use of the Old Testament scriptures by New Testament believers. He doesn't tell us everything that we might want to know about it, but he does tell us something about it that we need to pay attention to. Notice what he says. Verse 16, Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. His exhortation for the people of God to be holy, verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, is supported by a quotation, a citation of a text from Scripture. Because it is written, this is why you must be holy, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. It is written, perfect tense, it stands written. It was written, but not just was written. It stands written. This is the same formula that Jesus used in the wilderness when he was tempted by the devil. And he quoted scripture. It is written. In other words, it stands written. It was written, and what was written still stands. It is written in Leviticus 19... Be holy, for I am holy. And what was written then by the pen of Moses still stands today. That's why Peter can tell New Testament believers to be holy as God is holy and say the reason that I can tell you that is because it stands written in the book of Leviticus. What was written then still applies to you today. You New Covenant believers, you are to be holy as God is holy just like God's children under Moses are, were to be holy as God is holy. And so that tells us that the Old Testament is authoritative for New Testament believers, both Jews and Gentiles. Now, that doesn't help us sort out all of the details, that's for sure. As we go through Leviticus chapter 19, we see some things that we have no difficulty at all applying to ourselves today, just straight across the board. We know... For example, every one of you shall revere his mother and father. That's certainly a requirement for New Covenant believers. Paul said so in Ephesians chapter 6. Keep my Sabbaths. There would certainly be some legitimate debate as to exactly how that ought to be applied among New Covenant believers. Don't turn to idols. None of us have any difficulty with that. We don't question whether we are still under that injunction that we should not make graven images and turn to false gods. But then we get into some details that are rather strange to us. If you sacrifice to the Lord, 
You can eat it on the first day you sacrifice it. You can eat it on the second day that you sacrifice it. But if you eat it on the third day, it's an abomination so serious you can be cut off from the covenant people of God. And on it goes with other details. You can't mix your fabric together in your clothes. You can't plow together with animals of different kinds. And you've got all of these details of the holiness code mixed together, some of which very obviously and clearly apply to New Covenant believers, some of which we would say obviously and clearly do not apply to New Covenant believers, and some of which we may be left scratching our head as to know exactly do they and how do they apply to New Covenant believers. Peter, could you give us some more help in this regard? But no, he doesn't. He simply points the way by showing us that the Old Covenant scriptures are still authoritative for New Covenant believers in some way. And I think we can say this much, though it's rather general, we can say this much. The Old Testament reveals the essential character of God, and that never changes. The way that God wants his people to reflect his holiness, the details of that do change. The New Testament specifically abrogates the Mosaic Dietary Code and abrogates the requirement to be circumcised and so forth. Many of the things required under Moses, which were reflections of the holiness, the character of God, and of his requirement that his people be a holy people that is separate unto him, separate from the other peoples of the earth. And these requirements did that. They separated the people of Israel from the other peoples of the earth and designated them as belonging to God, holy unto the Lord. And we don't separate ourselves unto God in that way because Christ and the New Testament apostles have told us that is not the way that we are to separate ourselves unto God today. But the essential principle has not changed one bit. God is a holy God. God requires a holy people. God expects his people to be separate unto him in some way that is recognizable. The Old Testament goal was to form a people who conformed to God's character, and these codes helped those people to do that. And the New Testament goal is to form a people who conform to God's character. And there are instructions given to us for how to do that as well. And so we have discussed for a few moments the holiness of God. But now we need to discuss the holiness of man. Now it sounds strange that I would even say that. But my text, I think, gives me warrant to use that terminology. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. The holiness of man. And yet that sounds strange because we all understand the fact of man's inherent sinfulness, his, his natural unholiness. We know that to be true from our understanding of the Bible. We feel that to be so because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Man is inherently sinful. He's anything but holy. But, of course, if he were holy rather than sinful, then an exhortation like this would not even be needed. So the fact that Peter calls upon his readers to 
make themselves holy, to endeavor to be holy, to realize the need to become holy, is in itself a testimony to the fact that we don't start out that way. For if we were holy, no such exhortation would be needed. But I don't need to tell you that the Bible declares man's inherent sinfulness through and through. As it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. No exceptions to that. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, have fallen far short of the holiness of God, the standard of God, the glory of God, which is his character, his holiness. David told us that he was conceived in iniquity and that he went away, went astray rather from his mother's womb speaking lies. He was born into this world already sinful, already depraved. We trace that all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God created man in his image, created him in his likeness, created him in a state of righteousness to begin with, and man deliberately chose to sin and fell from that state, a state I suppose we could call holiness, at least some level of holiness, but man fell from that state, and ever after the human race has been plunged into depravity, and every man, every woman is born into this world already sinful. We don't become sinful because of what we do. We arrive sinful because of who we are. We are already fallen sons of Adam, sinners, anything but holy. And yet we see in our text the reality of God's required holiness. Though we are sinful, God requires that we shall be holy. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And this indeed is man's dilemma, isn't it? Man is inherently sinful and is that way from the beginning. There's no way to start over on that. And yet a holy God requires that men, his creatures, be holy like he is holy. And that is the dilemma. That is the seeming impossibility. But that is all designed to show sinners their need of Christ. And the Bible tells us that there are two kinds of holiness that are required by God. We could call those, number one, judicial, and number two, practical. There's a judicial holiness required by God, and that's what God does for us. There's also a practical holiness required by God, and that's what God does in us. The judicial holiness required by God is what God does for us in Christ. He gives us the imputed righteousness of Christ when we, by faith, trust in him. We are justified. We are declared righteous before the judgment bar of God in heaven. This judicial holiness is in heaven, not on earth. It's outside of man, not within man. It has to do with our record. But you see, our record is what we're going to be judged on before the judgment bar of God someday. If when we stand there, our record shows our sins without any any dealing with them legally, then we are condemned. A holy, righteous God must condemn us because our record demonstrates that we are worthy of condemnation. And a righteous God must judge the guilty. 
But if our record has been expunged in heaven, if our record has been been changed in heaven, if our record has been made clean in heaven by the work of Jesus Christ, if by this marvelous transaction the imputed righteousness of Christ is placed on our account in heaven and our sins and the judgment that they deserve were placed upon Christ upon the cross, then it is true that we are just, we are righteous, yes, we are holy. We are holy in heaven. As holy as Christ himself. I think that's good enough. A judicial holiness. But that's not all that is required of man. And Peter's not dealing with judicial holiness here. Peter's dealing with the second one, practical holiness. And now writing to those who have been made holy by justification. He commands us to act in a holy way. To be holy. To become holy. To pattern ourselves in this world, in our lives, after holiness. The practical holiness of what God by the work of His Holy Spirit in regeneration and in sanctification, does within us who are the children of God. It is a transforming holiness. It is gradual. It is partial. It is never complete. Our judicial holiness in heaven is complete the moment it is pronounced. When we are justified, we are completely and fully justified forevermore. That's not a matter of degrees. That is completely done in one one pronouncement. But the practical holiness of which Peter writes is something that is gradual and partial and never complete on earth. And it has to do with the required obedience that God demands of his children. This holiness is only possible for those who are converted, those who have been saved, those who have been changed, those who have a new heart, those who have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Until that is true, even the good things we do turn out to be sin because our motives are sinful. We didn't do them to honor and please God. We did them hoping for some return to ourselves, whether the acclaim of men or getting some advantage or being thought to have a reputation that is, that is the kind of reputation that we want to have in the earth. Nothing that the unbeliever does can be called holy. The Bible says even the plowing of the wicked is sin. You'd think a man out working hard and earning a living and supporting his family would be doing a a good deed if anything is, but you see, if his heart is unsurrendered to God, if he is in rebellion against God, then his motives for doing that have nothing to do with the purpose for which he was created, which is to bring glory to God. In fact, his motive for doing it is to continue to live in defiance of God, to make his own way without having to be dependent upon God, and therefore even the plowing of the wicked is sin. It's impossible for the unconverted person to obey this injunction, to be holy as God is holy. But for those who are saved, it is possible. Because 
God not only justifies, but he sanctifies. He not only pronounces us holy in heaven, but he also works in our lives to produce an ongoing holiness, or at least obedience in the direction of holiness throughout our lifetime. You see, sanctification always follows justification. Nobody is justified who is not being sanctified. Or as I put it in the message last Sunday, the imperatives always follow the indicatives. All of those indicatives, those statements of fact that that pertain to salvation in the first 12 verses of Peter's epistle are all things that we must believe, all things we must experience. There's nothing there for us to do in the first 12 verses. Just understand what God has done and believe it. But imperatives always follow indicatives. And if you understand this and believe this and have experienced this, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to your former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy In all your conduct. And why is this holiness required? Well, first of all, because of creation, but secondly, because of redemption. God actually has a right to require holiness of all of his creatures. Because we are all created by a holy God. And God has a right to require of his creatures a conforming to his standards, to his likeness. And yet, as we've already seen, because of the fall, we are left unable to do that. And so God, in mercy, has purchased to himself a people that he now doubly owns, not only by creation, but also by redemption. And he not only has the right to commend our holiness because he is our creator, but he doubly has that right because through Christ he is our redeemer. We were created by a holy God. We have been recreated by a holy God by grace, purchased at such great cost. In other words, for those who have been saved, God has done something for us that sets us apart from the world of fallen sinners. We have been selected for special privilege. But as he who called you, he who called you, are you the called of God according to his purpose? As he who called you is holy. He called us. Salvation, of course, is by divine initiative. God must break in upon our sin and darkness and death. It is the effectual call, as he who has effectively called you out of darkness into light. This speaks, of course, of the doctrine of election. If you are one of the called of God, then God has called you out of the mass of humanity. God has called you out of the kingdom of darkness. God has called you unto himself. And therefore, why would you ever doubt or deny that God has a right to expect something from you as privileged as you are? 
selected for special privilege, rescued from death and destruction, placed into God's family, children, we are called in verse 14. We have a filial relationship with the Most High God, the Holy God, who is separate from His creatures, and yet we have been made His sons. We are under the authority of our Heavenly Father. This Almighty God, High and Holy God, has become the Father of all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have become a member of God's family, and we are to represent His likeness in this world. Of course He has the right to call us to become like Himself. He has made us part of His family. We should bear the family resemblance. And so that brings us to consider the standard and pattern of this required holiness. What is it that's required of us? Well, whatever it is, it's exactly opposite our former lusts and the mold of the world referred to in verse 14. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but, and here's a big contrast, but the opposite, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Our standard is no longer the world. That's pretty much the standard we took for ourselves before we were called out of darkness. More or less, we conformed ourselves to the structure of the society in which we lived. We didn't want to do too many things that were frowned upon by society. That's not pleasant to live in society like that. But if if our community says it's okay, if our society says it's okay, then I say it's okay. That's the way we formed our standards. And, of course, society standards are constantly changing. Back in the society that I grew up in as a grade school boy, it was pretty well agreed by everyone that premarital sex was wrong. Now it seems to be agreed by everyone that premarital sex is perfectly okay. Society standard has changed. And there are a lot of people who say, if society says it's okay, then it's okay. If everybody else is doing it, then it's okay. I do what others do. I, I don't want to do things that other people consider wrong. I don't like the social implications of that. But I'll just pattern my life after those around me. I will get along with the world. But when you have been called out of the world by the grace of God, all of that changes. Not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And so our standard is no longer the world. Our standard is no longer our community. You can even find churches that are perfectly willing to, to wink at sin and to think it's all right for couples to live together unmarried and to be members of the church and active in the church. Churches that will allow that without batting an eye. Does that make it right? Is your standard the community in which you live, even if it's a religious community, even if it calls itself a Christian community? Is that your standard? No. Our standard is God himself. Our standard is God himself. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. That word also is, is the word in the English that makes it clear that he's saying that we are to be holy in the same way that God is holy. 
As he who called you is holy, you also be holy. Be holy just like the one who called you to salvation. The one who called you unto himself. The one who called you to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are to be holy in the same way that he is. Actually, that first phrase, if translated more literally from the Greek, would tell us that even without the word also. According to the manner in which God is holy, you are to be holy, is what it is saying. According to the manner in which God is holy, you are to be holy, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. Having been called into fellowship with Christ, into close association with God, that in itself will awaken us to our need of holiness because you can't be drawn near to the holy God without beginning to feel your sinfulness and your need of a better righteousness. That's what happened to Peter when he realized that Jesus was God. The miracle of the fishes was done when he called the fishes into the net and the net broke. So they signaled to their partners in Luke 5 to the other side uh, in the boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. When Peter saw it, he fell on his, fell at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. In near proximity to Christ, when he realized that Christ is the holy God, he suddenly felt the greatness of his sinfulness. But it is Christ the God-man who helps us see the pattern more clearly. We're called upon to be holy in the way that God is holy. What does that look like for human beings living on the earth? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus and follow in his steps. It's Peter who tells us that, isn't it? To follow in his steps. It's Paul who puts it this way in Romans 8:29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Conformed to the image of of his son. That's what God is doing in the lives of his children. He is molding us into the likeness of his very own son. That is our standard. That is our pattern. That is our required holiness. That is our goal. That is what we are moving toward. And how do we understand that? How do we know anything about Jesus and what he's like? Well, God has given us a Bible for that. So it really boils down to this in the final analysis. If we are to be holy like God is holy, what does that look like? Look to Jesus, see what he's like. Well, if we're to be holy like Jesus is holy, what does that look like? The only way we can know is if we look in the scriptures and see what has been recorded about him. And so, finally, it boils down to our Bible, doesn't it? God's revelation to us. The Bible through which God reveals himself to us shows us what he is like. Shows us his nature, his character, and what his holiness is like. The Bible reveals all of that to us. Do you think it's wrong that we emphasize the Bible so much around this church? Can we possibly overemphasize the Bible when it's the center of, of everything? And by the way, what is the extent of the required holiness? Everything. And all your conduct. All your conduct. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, not just your church life, but also in your married life. The way you relate to your husband or wife, 
be as holy as God. And your family life, the way you relate to your children and extended family members, you should be as holy as God. You should, you should relate to them the same way Jesus would. And your school life and your work life and your social life and your recreation life and your entertainment life, in all your conduct, every day, every moment, every deed, every word, every thought, every moment, every motive, holiness that reaches to the very core of our being, not only avoiding outward sin, but delighting in God and His holiness at all times. That's the goal, and that's the requirement. That's the goal, though never sinless. Perfect holiness is the goal, and we can never be content with less than that. That's the requirement that God has laid upon us, both as His creatures and as His blood-bought children, and He has every right to do so, and we can never be content until we have reached that standard. So let me apply quickly what we've learned today. First of all, when we strive and fail, as we all do, striving to be holy as He is holy and falling so far short, what do we do? Well, first, remember the perfect judicial righteousness you have in Christ before God in heaven. That will help you guard against despair. That will enable you to have deep joy even in the midst of trials and sense of failure, that will enable you to sense the Father's love. If He loved me so much as to call me out of darkness unto Himself, then I know the Father loves me even when I fail. And when we strive and fail as we do, then avail yourself of the throne of grace. That's what it's there for. To obtain grace and mercy to help in time of need. That's where we go to confess our sins knowing that He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's where we go for renewed strength and encouragement when we fail, as we do. In fact, the more progress we make in holiness, the more we sense our failure. The fact of the matter is, as God's children, we do not feel holy. And we do not see ourselves as holy. You have to be totally lost to think you're holy. Once you've been saved, you could never possibly think yourself holy again. We don't feel holy. We don't see ourselves as holy. But we are holy in Christ. We are holy in Christ. And we are becoming holy. So when we strive and fail, keep these things in mind. But number two, when we presume upon grace and become worldly in our attitudes, as we sometimes do. Here's what we need. We need to remember that holiness is not an option. It's not a nice suggestion, a good idea. Wouldn't it be nice if we did this? This is a command. A command to jar us out of apathy by the high demands of a holy God. And until we are as holy as Jesus is, we're not where we ought to be. So don't quit working at it. And number three, when we find no desire or ability to please God, when this kind of desire for holiness that I'm talking about is foreign to you, then you need to recognize your sinful condition as a fallen son of Adam. And you need to recognize your danger if you continue down this path unchanged. You can go to hell whistling all the way because you're oblivious to your true condition and danger. You can go to hell 
I don't fear death. I don't fear hell. Yeah, because you're blind and ignorant. Wake up. May God the Holy Spirit wake you up. Recognize your danger as you continue down this path unchanged. If you're not changed, if your heart's not changed, you are going to eternal destruction because a holy God requires perfect holiness of all those who come to heaven. And therefore, go to Christ. Go to Christ. I can, I can tell you the remedy. I can tell you what to do. I can tell you how it can all be changed. I can tell you where there's divine aid, aid to supply what you do not have within yourself. I can tell you where there's divine mercy, a merciful God who delights to save those who come to him, acknowledging their need and cast themselves upon him in faith. I can point you to Jesus Christ, and I can tell you that if you'll come to him, you will be saved and have the required holiness. Shall we pray? Well, Lord, these are sobering words to remind us what is required of us, but they are encouraging words as we remember what Christ has done to secure our righteousness. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you a million times. Thank you for saving undeserving wretches. And, Lord, do it again. Do it again. Save others who are yet outside of Christ. Save our young people. Save our friends, our neighbors, our loved ones. Save, O Lord, those who cannot save themselves. Do it by your power. Do it because of your mercy and loving kindness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.